Acts 23, verse 1. Let's look here together. Uh, The Bible says, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you to sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? And then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. I pray that you would speak to our hearts, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive everything that you have for us tonight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, Tonight, the title of my teaching is In Defense of the Gospel. In Defense of the Gospel. We have a word in theology called apologetics. Uh, In fact, Jeff Weaver and Chaplain Weaver and Miranda have a degree in apologetics. And the the word apologetics, it comes from the word apologia, and it it simply means to make a defense of or to make an argument for. It's actually a legal term, if you will, uh, that when somebody states their case with compelling, uh, compelling, convincing facts— And so, there is a whole group of Christianity, and you see this sometimes, where there will be men of, uh, for instance, like a man, Dr. Michael Brown. He is a born-again, spirit-filled, messianic Jew. He was a Jewish believer who received Jesus as his Messiah, and he debates um, Muslims all the time, and uh, I mean, very professional. I don't mean like Facebook debates, amen. I mean college, university level where there are rules, right? You've got clocks, and you get to speak for six minutes, and you get to speak for six minutes. And uh, the Bible does give place for that because the Scripture tells us that we're to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have. In other words, if somebody says, well, why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you believe he's the Son of God? We, we need a better answer other than just my Sunday school teacher told me or my mama told me. We've got to be able to make a defense for the gospel. And what we're going to find tonight specifically, and we've seen it in the past and we will see it in the present and even more in the future, is that Paul spent a lot of his life defending the gospel. He did. Understanding Paul's background, Paul was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was uh, under Gamaliel, studied under Gamaliel. He was circumcised on the eighth day, bilingual. He was a high-ranking official 
in the religious world. This guy would be like somebody who was on the opposing army's front line, and now he's on the other team. So that makes him hated. It makes people upset with him because now he has uh, proselyted, if you will, or converted from one team to the other. And so now everybody's upset with him. And add the fuel to the fire is that all of the religious people don't like Jesus because he has turned the world upside down. And so now Paul finds himself um, in just a world of trouble. Now, if you remember last week, uh, actually when we looked at this, we learned that Paul was very misunderstood. They misunderstood his message. Remember Paul, when he preached, um, he was preaching that um, a Jew, when a Jew got saved, he didn't have to forsake his customs. He could still um, do his ceremonies and whatnot with the understanding that Christ fulfilled the law. So Paul would have taught it like this, Christ is our Passover. So when, if you're a Jew and you, you've uh, transferred over to Christ, then it's okay for you to take the little Passover supper as long as you realize it's looking toward what Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 4, uh, the writer also says that Christ is our Sabbath. There is a rest for the people of God. So as a Jew, Paul was saying, you don't have to, to forsake all of your heritage and all of your culture to follow Jesus. Now, contrary, he said to the Gentiles, you don't have to become a Jew. Because there were Jewish people who were like, okay, well, if you're going to follow the Messiah, then you're going to have to be circumcised, and, you're, and which, by the way, that's a cultural norm thing today. But in, our, in the Bible day, that was a very religious thing. And so today we do that for sanitary reasons. But uh, in the Bible day, it was very cultural, and it was very taboo and if you did not. And so, uh, he was telling the Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. You don't have to go into the temple and do all the rigmarole because Jesus fulfilled the law. They misunderstood Paul's message. They jumbled it all up, and that, that caused an uproar. And then Paul's trying to work it out. He's trying to make peace. He's trying to do the right thing. But in doing the right thing, he goes to some of the leaders and they say, Paul, you know, listen, word on the street is they're mad at you. But um, Paul, we, I'm paraphrasing, Paul, we know you're a great guy. We, we know your heart. You love Jesus. You're zealous. But you know, Paul, um, th there's four guys over here. Um, they're getting ready to go through a ceremonial, uh, a ritualistic cleansing. It's like a, like a, a, a bathing. They did that outside the temple. It was like a form of, of showing you've repented before God. There was a, a ceremony that they went through, and then they had so many days where they had to uh, show forth their their, you know, their ceremony. And so, Paul said, okay, that's not, that's not compromising my faith. That's not me turning back on the gospel. It's not going to hurt anything. Maybe by doing this, these guys will see that I'm a good guy. And guess what? Paul was trying to do right. And by doing right, they made him, he made them very upset because they said, now look at this man. He's mocking us. He's brought Gentiles into the tabernacle. And so, they're really upset now, and they bind him up. One of the lessons that we learned last week at the very end was that if people like you, you can do no wrong. But if people don't like you, you can do no right. Amen. 
And uh, people are always going to see you through those filters. And, and Paul was that way, so his motives were misunderstood, his methods was misunderstood, his message was misunderstood, his ministry was misunderstood. And so they bind him up and they take him in front of the religious leaders. And that sets the stage for tonight, right where we are in Acts chapter 23, where Paul makes a defense of the gospel. Now, I must confess, I love court shows and law shows with police officers and FBI, and if it's clean enough to watch, I love that kind of stuff, okay? And so, it, it's, it's amazing. I grew up watching uh, um, Matlock and Columbo. Come on, somebody. My grandparents used to watch that kind of stuff on TV every night. So, um, you know, do you remember? I used to love Matlock. I used to love that guy, and uh, he was just a great lawyer. I love when he got on the on the on the you know, uh, what's the thing called? Anyway, he would get up there and he would make his case, and he was questioning you know, uh, questioning the people. Where were you at on the sixth of this month, and what time were you doing this? And can anybody prove where you were? And I, I just love all of that. But they say one of the craziest things that a person can ever do in a court of law is defend themselves. They say, don't do that. You're too emotionally invested and you're going to mess something up. You're not legally trained. But the law does allow for somebody to defend themselves. And when Paul is standing in front of the religious people, Paul doesn't have a lawyer. He doesn't have an advocate. He doesn't have anybody to represent him except the Holy Spirit inside of him. And so Paul has to go up and state his case in front of the people. Can you imagine how scary that would have been? For the average person, it might have been. But Paul, up until this point, has proven to us he's a pretty fearless guy. You've had prophets come into him saying, Paul, you're going to be bound up in Jerusalem and, 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 you know, all of these things. And Paul says, so what? I'm ready to die. What's that matter to me? I'm ready to both be bound and to give my life in Jerusalem. Paul was not moved by anything. And so the average person would have been really full of fear and intrepidation, but not Paul. Because Paul's setbacks often became his setups. Can I tell you that when the enemy tries to knock you down, oftentimes it's God positioning you to be launched up. And that's what Paul saw in this moment. Paul was truly living out Romans chapter 8, verse 26 through 28. For God causes all things to work together for our good. And so legitimately, now Paul is finding himself positioned with these people. And let's look at it together. This is crazy meat of the word in these next few verses. But go back to Acts 23, verse 1 with me, and let's look at this together. I'm going to read a couple of these things. Um, it says, Then Paul, being earnest, looking earnestly at the council, he said, Men and brethren, I have lived in good conscience before God until this day. Now, I want to, I want to stop right there for just a moment, and I want to bring out a couple things. First of all, I want to look at Paul's wording. Let's look at Paul's conscience. This is what, what Paul said. Point number one is Paul's conscience. Paul says, men and brethren, I have lived uh, among you uh, in good conscience before God even until this day. Here's what Paul was doing. Paul was laying a defense, and here's what he was saying. You have said that I was trying to manipulate people. You said that I was trying to uh, cause the Gentiles to do this, and you said I was trying to cause the Jews to do that. And here's what Paul was saying. He said, I, I want to tell you, first of all, 
he said that I have lived the best that I could before God, obeying his statutes and obeying his commands. But interesting enough, I want you to notice this. When Paul addresses them, he calls them men and brethren. That's important because what Paul has just done in this moment was he was trying to get on equal playing field with them. Because until this point, they were treating him like an outsider. Few verses, a few chapters before, Paul identifies himself as having some Roman citizenship. Now he's in front of a jury uh, of, of people who are uh, of among his own people. And Paul addresses them as men and brethren, which immediately identifies him as one of them. Again, Paul's just trying to do the right thing. Then Ananias, the high priest, got so enraged that he ordered Paul to be smacked right upside his head. And if you know anything about that culture, it wasn't like your grandma popped you on the back of the head. It was so hard, it probably knocked your teeth out if you hit, hit you the right way. Can you imagine trying to live for God? And this is what I get. Most of us would have quit way before this time. God, if this is my portion in life and this is what I get for serving you, then I don't want to serve you anymore. But you can't forget, Paul didn't walk into this blindly. The Lord told him, you're going to Jerusalem. You're going to stand before the people. And then the Holy Spirit through the prophets and then also through uh, the, uh, Ananias, uh, uh, Agabus the prophet and others through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit tried to warn Paul. But Paul said, you know what? I'm good for it. I'm up for the challenge. And he finds himself in that place. And the next thing you know, pop, struck right across the face. And then we move into this next part where we see Paul's correction. Now, Paul's... Paul's a dude that I don't, I don't know how much you know about Paul, but I don't really think I want to mess with him. And I'm going to tell you why. If you read Paul's letters, um, Paul basically, when he's writing to the various churches that he founded and he's trying to offer them correction, Paul tells them, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm writing to you as if I am present with you. But Paul made it seem like that in person he was kind of timid, but he was kind of bold in his letter. But we, we have some things about Paul that we've got to understand. As you see, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul's dealing with crazy stuff. Crazy. You think Jerry Springer was crazy? Ain't got nothing on 1st, 2nd Corinthians. Folks getting drunk at communion, and they're skipping in line, and they're uh, one guy's Bible translators and theologians are divided on the issue. Either way, it's messed up. It says he, this man in the church, you're, he's sleeping with his father's wife. Who knows if that's his mama or his stepmama? It's still messed up. Amen. And what's even more messed up is Paul said, hey, people in the church know about it, and you're cool with it. He said, you got a problem. You're letting a little bit of leaven, leaven the whole lump, and it's going to cause an issue. Paul said, put him up. And here's what Paul said. And I don't believe anybody could do this, but Paul 
through apostolic authority, here's what he said. For such a one, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his soul might be saved in the day of judgment. I don't know exactly what it means to be turned over to Satan and, and a man of God have the power to do that, but I really don't want to find out. I mean, so Paul rose up and he said, you slap me, God will smite you, you whitewashed Paul. I mean, he, I mean, you know, Paul and Peter were total opposite, but I see Peter starting to come out right here. You know, I'm looking for the sword to cut off somebody's ear. And all of a sudden, somebody spoke out. Let's look at what they said. We look here, verse 3, Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command to be, to, to be, to be struck contrary to the law? Stop right here in case you weren't here a week or two ago, but we established Paul, Paul's case previously was that the way that they were treating him was contrary because of his citizenship as a Roman. He's saying, you're, 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 you're treating me like a foreigner, and I'm actually one of you. And Paul said, this is unlawful. It's unjust. But Ananias got so caught up in his emotions, he hit him anyway, and Paul just let him have it for a moment. When I look at this, I don't know about you, when I read the Bible, let me, let me rabbit trail for a minute. If I were God, and I'm not, obviously, but if I were God and I was responsible for writing the, the Scripture, there's some stuff I would have left out. Samson and Delilah, left out. David and Bathsheba, left out. Come on, Tamar, left out. I would have left all that stuff out. Because I don't want everybody to see all my bad kids and all their bad business. But when I look at Paul getting upset here, and I look at Peter cutting the dude's ear off, it sure does make me feel good about myself. I mean, I, I know the Scripture says we're not to compare ourselves among ourselves. Our Jesus is our standard. But even Jesus went in the temple and flipped over tables. I mean, it really makes me feel good with my humanity. But we're going to see something really interesting that we will run over and miss that I think is more applicable in 2021 and 2022 than in any other generation before us. Notice this. And those who stood by who watched Paul, notice they watched Paul get slapped and they watched Paul speak up. And here's what they said. They said, uh, and those who stood by said, verse 4, do you revile God's high priest? Now all of a sudden you're, you're concerned about the law. You weren't concerned about it when you were treating me unfairly. And now you want to talk about the law? And something shifted in Paul because the law said you were not to speak evil of a dignitary. You were not to speak evil of a ruler of God's people. We have a problem with this in America because we have a problem with authority. Now, I'm sidetracking. Let's jog over to the, one of Peter's epistles and see where Peter said, love God or fear God, love the brotherhood, and honor the king. He didn't say the king you voted for. 
He didn't say the king that's the Republican or the king that's the Democrat. He just said, honor the king. And if I can be real specific with you tonight, the king that Peter was referencing was Nero, which, by the way, was one of the most evil, wicked kings of all history. He was so bad, he had a a hanging garden, one of the wonders of the world. And as entertainment, Nero would capture Christians, and if he didn't decide to let them be eaten by lions, he would douse them in oil and light them on fire to light his festivities that night. That's the guy. That Peter said through the Holy Spirit, honor the king. Here's the principle. You don't honor the person. You honor the position. So Paul said, in my own words, sorry, I did not know he was the high priest. Which tells me, this is also interesting, which tells me this was an informal meeting. This would be like a judge making a ruling without his robe on. This was a backroom deal. This was an impromptu meeting. Because had Ananias had on his stuff, Paul would have known. He would have been able to identify him through all of the cultural garb that he would have been wearing. But no, this was a quick-to-do, backdoor type of meeting where everybody got together to see what they're going to do about this guy named Paul. And then Paul uh, um, corrects him, and then he corrects himself. Quotes the law, shows respect for the office. What can we learn from that? Learn from this tonight. You can disagree without being dishonorable. Amen. If we need to learn anything in America today, we can disagree without being dishonorable. Amen. Amen. Do you hear me? You can disagree without being dishonorable. It grieves my heart. Whenever I hear somebody speaking horrible of a mayor, a governor, a president, whatever, I'm not talking about disagreeing with policies. My Lord, listen, I don't vote for people who kill babies and, and do all that stuff either. Listen, but, but to curse the leader of your nation is like hoping the guy that's flying your plane crashes into a mountain. How smart is that? Amen? You pray for those who are in authority. That's what we do. You might need to pray they leave office, or you might need to pray they get saved, but you pray for them, and you honor the office. Paul, Paul showed us this right here in the Scripture. But then the wisdom of God shows up. And I'm going to show you how Paul, through the Holy Spirit, got himself out of a hard place. Scripture doesn't implicitly say this. But we know when you learn about the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? We focus on tongues and interpretation and prophecy and those things. But uh, of those gifts are the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. And the word of knowledge is God revealing something to our senses unknown to us. That's a piece of information. But the word of, of wisdom would be the application of those facts or those things. Be like Solomon whenever the two women came together and was accusing the one of stealing the baby in the night. And Solomon said, okay, we'll just saw it in half and each of you take one. And by the wisdom of God, Solomon knew that the real mama would say, you're not cutting my baby here. Take it. Let it live. Wisdom. Wisdom. But I want you to know what Paul did. Whew, this is cool. Look at this. Uh, uh, go, Go back with me. And so... Uh, let's see here. Verse 6. But when Paul perceived, in other words, so Paul was catching on here. He perceived. 
Notice because everybody wasn't dressed like normal. They, they, they might have been in their Walmart clothes for all I know. You know, people go to Walmart in their pajamas, right? Uh, so we don't know. It says, so Paul perceived one part was Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees. And he said, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. What is Paul saying? The whole reason why Paul's in trouble because he's preaching Jesus Christ, the Messiah, died and was resurrected. And if you want to uh, have eternal life, you turn to the Messiah and repent of your sins. But the whole crux of the matter that had the people upset was Paul's belief in Jesus, his actual physical resurrection from the dead. We don't realize that the resurrection, what we celebrate on what the world calls Easter or Resurrection Sunday, is the single most pivotal event in all of Christian history. Yes, the birth of Christ is important, but without the resurrection, the gospel has no leg to stand on. So, Paul's, Paul, Paul realizes, thinking on both feet here, very stressful situation, he realizes half of the room is Pharisees, half of the room is Sadducees. We might as well say it like this. Half of the room is OU, half of the room is OSU. They're not agreeing. They're not agreeing. So Paul starts talking about the one thing that's going to start a fire, the resurrection. And notice this. Notice this. It says, and when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and they don't believe in the angels or spirits or any type of spiritual things. But the Pharisees confessed both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribe of the Pharisees' party arose in protest, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if the spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So they started to wise up here for just a moment. But then it says, Now when, a great, uh, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them. So, we see Paul, his conscience, we see his correction, but number three, we see his confidence. His confidence is in the gospel, his confidence is in the resurrection, and in his delivering this message, God set him up because what, what Paul did, basically, he did it on purpose. Depending on what translation of the Bible you read, it is plain as the nose on your face that Paul did this on purpose. He saw a puddle of gasoline, and he lit a match and threw it right in the middle of it. And they started fighting against each other. And the commander, because he's Roman, was afraid that they would trample Paul, kill Paul, rip him into pieces, as he said. So they whisked him away into safety. Because in Roman law, if they lose a prisoner, they lose their life. It's not like at any of our prisons, and you know, if a prisoner jumps the fence, then, oh, well, we just have to go look for him. No. Who was watching this prisoner? And why'd you let him go? Pow! Kill him. Fall on your sword. So Paul, through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, was able to get out of this volatile situation. And as we say in Arkansas, go from the grease to the frying pan. 
He's not safe just yet. Next week, we're going to see how God just continually takes Paul from place to place to place. And if we get anything out of all of this, I think there's one life application that all of us can learn, and I'm done tonight. I think there's one application that all of us can learn is that until God is done with you, the enemy can't stop you. As long as you stay in the will of God. And Paul was endeavoring. He wasn't a perfect human. I'm sure he made mistakes just like everybody else. There's nobody sinless but Jesus. But as long as he stayed in the will of God and was trying to do what God had called him to do, the enemy tried to take him out, and he could not because Paul had purpose on his life. But, you know, when push come to shove, there's one thing that we can say about Paul. When Paul met Christ— on the road to Damascus, his encounter was different than all the other apostles. Paul encountered the Lord in a very supernatural way. And he was struck blind, and, and uh, you know, he heard a voice, and the Lord began to talk to him, and he began to teach Paul and, and all those things. But when Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit, he was changed and, and really turned into a different man. And God took the negative of Paul's life. The terrorism, the anger. He was a murderer. He did that. He, he killed Christians, women and children, the Scripture says, drugged them out of their house and murdered them. You believe in Jesus? Okay, you're going to die today. That was Paul, 100%. The guy who wrote two-thirds of the Bible we hold in our hands. God changed him, took the zeal for the negative, and turned it to the positive. So that now, with that very same tenacity— Paul, because he's been forgiven much, loves much, and is now willing to lay his life down. But if there's anything we learn about Paul, was that he was not afraid. He was not afraid. And I think all of us tonight can realize that if the Lord is with us, we don't need to be afraid. And we need to be able to give an account to those who ask us about our faith. God help us not to be those people who deny the Lord if the day ever come where somebody says, do you believe in Jesus? You know, I, I say I'm closing, but man, this, my heart stirred on this. Everybody remembers the horrid, horrid story of Columbine, the little girl who gave her life, to Christ, uh, gave her life for Christ because she wouldn't denounce her faith. Man, do you, don't you know there was a welcoming party in heaven. The Bible says there is a crown laid up, a martyr's crown in heaven. Revelation talks about all of those souls underneath the throne of God that had given their life for the sake of the gospel. And listen, I hope I, I really do. I hope I never have to go that way. In fact, my, my prayer is, is that uh, I'm alive when the rapture happens and I just get on out of here. That's, that, that, that's, that's my hope. But should the Lord call some other way, we got to be willing. Amen? Let's pray.